Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, hello there. My name is Zach Twomley, and this is When Diplomacy Fails. But what exactly is this, Zach? What are you doing releasing an alternative history episode with a similar title to one you've released, well, about a year and a half before? So maybe you're really, really confused and you don't know what's going on here. This right here is an alternative history episode. We imagine what would have happened if Gavrilo Princip missed. That is the crux of what's going on. That is the, the core of what we're trying to figure out. And we use characters that are real. We use characters that are made up. We imagine what would have happened in certain situations based on history as it stood in this moment in summer 1914. It is quite an adventure, quite a journey, and well, maybe you disagree with it, but maybe you think it's plausible, and maybe you think I could even have gone further, or maybe you think things would have gone even more off the rails. Maybe you think that the conclusions I came to, well, they were a bit too generous on the people involved. Either way, guys, this right here is something I really enjoy doing. And if you would like to make sure we do more of these, then please do go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, and you'll see that our goal for $2,000 a month is 
Something you have been asking for over and over again. An alternative history series on the Second World War. Hmm. What if Nazi Germany won? Imagine that. What if Nazi Germany won? That is the kind of story you can support me to go and do. And if you would like to do that, then, of course, you won't be just supporting that, you'll also be accessing an hour of extra content every month. You could be playing the delegation game. You could be doing all sorts of brilliant stuff. So please do head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or tell people about what we're doing here and tell them that there's never been a better time to listen to this podcast because tea for tell somebody is the best part of be fit. It's the most important, it's the most effective and it's absolutely free of charge. Here's the thing, a bit of backstory before we get into this. To celebrate the fifth birthday of this podcast in May 2017, I did this thing called Five Weeks to Run Wild, where every day for five weeks I released two episodes. It was freaking insane, but during the course of that, well, adventure or saga or whatever you'd like to call it, I did something called an alternative history episode, where I imagined a scenario happening and read out a script to you almost as though it was fact, so we were basically pretending that these things happened, And I was giving you a narrative of this alternative historical path, like the way that history would have gone if a certain event had happened. The whole thing was received really well, and you guys really seemed to enjoy it. You liked the fact that I approached alternative history differently, and ever since I did this I've been asked by so many different people to tackle something else. What about the American Civil War? What about the Second World War? What about just any war at all, Zach? Please do more alternative history stuff. First of all, to that, I will say I absolutely will be doing more alternative history stuff in the future, and I will be keeping to this formula because I like this formula and it suits me and my style. However, don't get too excited because today this is not a brand new thing. I mean, it sort of is for those of you listening right now. Because when I released this in May 2017, I had the idea that certain parts of it would be locked behind a paywall. So it's in four parts. The first two parts were available for everyone. The last two parts were behind, well, behind the paywall, as I said. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. That's where you would find it. However, every time Christmas rolls around, I like to give you guys something. Give you guys back something as a thank you present for sticking with me for this entire year. It's been a very, very busy year. And next year is going to be extra super busy and also very important for me professionally and personally because hopefully things with Cambridge will be working out. So there's an awful lot to look forward to for myself and there's an awful lot that we can be proud of and thankful for in this year that has just gone by. 2018 has been a brilliant year for me professionally and personally because I got a lecturing job, because this podcast has grown so fantastically and because you guys have all been supporting me so freaking well. It's just been an amazing journey and I'm not at all finished yet. The Versailles Anniversary Project is rolling on, so it occurred to me while I was doing the Versailles Anniversary Project, while I was trying to think of something to give to you guys, give to you listeners, to release something from the Patreon feed into the normal feed, it occurred to me that, well, the alternative history thing was really well received, so why don't I do something with that? So that's what I'm doing today. All four parts of the alternative history series available for you guys absolutely for free. So here's how it's going to work. The first hour-long episode will be the first two episodes that were available originally, and the second hour episode will be the two episodes you haven't heard, so parts three and four. I made it condensed like this just to be a bit more tidy, and to save you guys having to scroll all the way down the previous parts of the feed, I decided to just delete those old two episodes and re-release them here in a more compact 
unit, I suppose you could say. I don't know. Maybe this won't really work. Maybe you guys will get a kick out of it. But either way, if it's something that you listened to a year and a half ago and maybe you think you might want to revisit it, then now is the best time to do it. Because not only do you have it way more efficiently organized right here in a nice little bundle, you also have parts three and four, some new content that you won't have heard before. Those of you wondering right now, well, what about your patrons, Zach? Won't they be annoyed? Nuh-uh, because they just got the latest two episodes of 1956. So they've no right to be unhappy at all. In fact, they're very happy with 1956. And I should be, of course, telling you that if you'd like to listen to an hour of extra content every month, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is where you should be going. We're going to be massively expanding Patreon next year. We're going to be doing some very cool things as well with the podcast, including stuff like the delegation game, where you can create an avatar, send them to the Paris Peace Conference, and every single week I will narrate their exploits, their adventures, their failures, their triumphs, etc. And we'll be holding interactive polls and making everyone have a say in what goes on. It's going to be really fun, probably a bit crazy and very involving, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm really looking forward to keeping on going with the Versailles Anniversary Project as well, guys. Before we go any further, though, before we actually get into the meat of this episode, I just want to say thank you so much. Really, I've just, I've got, for some reason, I got two really nice emails today just saying how much they loved the Korean War. And it was just so nice. And sometimes when you do this for a long time, when you shut yourself away and write a long script or whatever, you kind of, you kind of forget how blessed you are to have this as your job, to be able to create things and send them out there to people and have them react to them and enjoy them. I can't express enough how thankful I am for what you guys have done. The fact that you're listening to me right now, whatever country you're in, that a guy from Ireland who has the most intense imposter syndrome you can imagine is able to do this and is able to bring you enjoyment with history. I really can't express how much that means to me. And I really can't express either how much you as a listener mean to me too, because the internet can be pretty awful sometimes, but With this, with history podcasting, with podcasting in general, that it can bring people together, that it can make people think and talk and everything else, it's fantastic. Sometimes it's easy to feel depressed or upset looking at the way the world is these days and the fact that it is so divided. And I've always wanted When Diplomacy Fails to be a place you can go as a retreat from all that, to just listen and enjoy the history. I am trying to be as balanced as I possibly can, but this episode you're about to listen to, it's just for fun. So enjoy it. Enjoy it. And remember, while you're listening, that you are wonderful. You are a great history friend, and I really, really appreciate you. Okay, so before I start crying everywhere and sobbing, I should also say, have a great Christmas. Have a happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, everything else. Enjoy yourselves, and stay safe, and spend time together. And don't listen to too much when diplomacy fails, because you should be doing more important things. Alrighty, guys, have a great time, and I'll be seeing you all, of course in the second part of this episode. The motorcade returned to the road. 
It seemed incredible that such lapses in security should occur around the heir to the Habsburg throne, but such were the state of things in 1914 Sarajevo that Franz Ferdinand now wished merely to bring the whole visit to an end. His itinerary had at least been cut short. They were to visit the earlier victims of a terrorist bomb attack in hospital, rather than visit the city's barracks as originally planned. Into the third car, Franz and his wife climbed, with the governor of Sarajevo, Oskar Potjeric, in the front seat beside the driver. With two cars in front and two cars behind, the parade moved down the Apple Key, but the police chief had neglected to inform the driver in front of the change in itinerary. As the front, and therefore second cars, attempted to reverse, having turned up the wrong street, Franz and Sophie's car was stuck in place until the motorcade righted itself. It was then that the governor of Sarajevo, Oskar Potjerek, who indeed was sat in the car with Franz and Sophie, noticed him. He was a thin, dark-haired and altogether unwell-looking man, and he was stepping away from the seats outside Schiller's Bakery, along the shopping street nearby, and he was walking steadily towards him. But it wasn't so much the surroundings as the man himself and what he held in his hand. In his outstretched hand was a firearm, and as he got closer, Potcherick could tell it was a Belgian-made Fabrique Nationale Model 1910 semi-automatic pistol. His finger was squeezing the trigger, and the weapon was pointed in the direction of the Archduke. Potcherick opened his mouth to scream a warning, just as Franz turned his head towards the would-be assassin. A loud shot was heard, and then another. Suddenly citizens began yelling and running in panic. Potcherick called to Franz to get down, and as he did so he heard an audible groan. A policeman had been struck and had collapsed to the ground. In a panic, Potcherick looked first to the assailant, who was struggling with a passerby for his weapon, and then to the Archduke. Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were unharmed, but shaken. It had been a very close-run thing. It was then that Potcherek realised that he himself had been hit, but in the shoulder. Franz looked at his wound with concern, and Potcherek straightened up before getting out of the car. It is nothing, Potcherek called after the Archduke. You both stay here. Civilians would later attest to Potcherek's bravery on that day, as an eyewitness recounted that Potcherek, almost without realising, had lunged in front of the Archduke once he heard the shots. They had been fired by a Bosnian Serb by the name of Gavrido Princip. Princip had fired one shot at the car, which struck the outstretched Potcherek in the shoulder, only to fire at a policeman when he noted the latter coming towards him with his own weapon. A Bosnian bystander, after noting Princip was a danger to all involved, struggled with him for the gun and overpowered him. Princip took his cyanide pill, but it was old and it only made him vomit. He crumpled in a heap outside the bakery in which he had just purchased a sandwich. Potcherek had to call for help to prevent the citizens passing by from beating Princip to death. He wanted to bring this terrorist in for questioning and see who was behind the whole scheme. The following days were a blur for the Habsburg administration in Sarajevo. All the terrorists involved that day, from Princip himself to his peers, of whom all survived their own suicide attempts, were later captured and brought in for questioning. Amidst their line of query, it was discovered just how far up the chain of command the assassination plot actually went. A Serbian colonel, 
Dragutin Dmitrievich, codenamed Apis, had provided the assassins with all the materials they would need to be successful. A major, Tankosic, was another man who was involved, and he happened to be the head of Serbian military intelligence, but that wasn't all. Tankosic, through a curious chain of command, had both received and passed notes to individuals ranging from Nikola Pesic, the Serbian Prime Minister, to Nikolai Hartwig, the Russian ambassador to Serbia. Under both international and direct Austrian pressure, Belgrade was compelled to cooperate. On the 30th of June 1914, amidst a great reception in Vienna, Franz Ferdinand received Oskar Pacharek, the man whom he credited with saving his life and thus saving the future of the Habsburg monarchy. Still sporting a bandage and sling over his injured shoulder, the governor of Sarajevo, Oskar Pacharek, became an overnight sensation in the European and eventually world media, upheld as the Habsburg loyalist who had been willing to lay down his life for his beloved royal family. The news inspired marches in support of the monarchy in Vienna and across Austria, as the great admiration and pride of the Habsburg citizen was wildly expressed and, of course, encouraged. While presenting the award to Pacharek, Franz Ferdinand announced that a Congress of Powers were due to meet in Vienna on the 2nd of July to discuss the recent events in Sarajevo, and that Pacharek would be the Habsburg representative at this Congress. The Congress in Vienna, held 99 years after the original Congress of Vienna, which had ended the Napoleonic Wars, served as a great showcase for Habsburg prestige. One clerk working at the event was later quoted as saying, Before Sarajevo, the dual monarchy seemed to be on death's door. Now it seems as though, by trying to kill it, Serbia has made itself an enemy not merely of the Habsburgs, but of the general European peace. The Congress involved all of the great powers to be attended by ambassadors or other important statesmen and conducted mostly behind closed doors for fear of another assassination attempt. Through German pressure, directly authorised by Kaiser Wilhelm II, a great friend and ally of Franz Ferdinand and his wife, the other Congress members were encouraged to see Sarajevo as an assault on the monarchical principle as much as it was an assassination attempt on the Habsburg heir. It became immensely difficult for the Russian attendee at the Congress, as Russia had no permanent ambassador to Austria at this point in time, to argue for a policy of clemency towards Serbia. International opinion was building against the Serbs, and when it emerged that Nikolai Hartwig, the Russian ambassador in Belgrade, had been implicated, further scandal was brought upon St. Petersburg. The French representative at the Congress of Vienna, who in fact was the French premier, René Viviani, was under pressure from Paris to reduce the damage of the scandal on Russia's reputation and that of France by making a point to stand visibly aloof from such schemes while Viviani also had to find a way to appear to back the Russians up. It was a difficult line to tread, though, particularly when confronted by the picture of Habsburg patriotism and confidence that Governor Pacharek represented. The story of his act of heroism had gripped the imagination and attentions of the media, and paintings of the act were already being commissioned. While at the Congress in Vienna over the 2nd to the 4th of July 1914, it was learned that the Russian ambassador to Serbia had been arrested by the Serbian mop-up operation in Belgrade. International pressure, it seemed, appeared to be taking its toll. 
Nikola Pesic was said to be the next political casualty of the scandal, though it was rumoured that the old Serbian statesman wouldn't go quietly. Again, Potjurek cut a dashing figure, recalling the day's events and insisting on a moment's silence for the policeman whom Princip had shot and who later died of his wounds. The Bosnian people, Potjurek exclaimed, would not stand for such an attack on their honourable serviceman. He hoped that the assembled representatives would see the need for justice to those both living and dead. The British ambassador to Vienna, Sir Morris de Bunsen, was especially sympathetic to Potjurek's appeals. British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey was said to be preparing a memo back in London for Cabinet. Upon the outrage committed by the Serbian terrorists, and without any clear information on how far up the chain of command the conspiracy precisely went, Grey published a memo calling for calm and urging Serbian cooperation. The Home Rule crisis in Ireland was said to have been especially distracting for Grey and others in Cabinet. John Morley, a member of Cabinet on the Board of Trade, was said to have been especially critical about the Russian role in the attempt and the general mood of sympathy in Britain prevented any direct involvement by London in any alternative schemes. The most straightforward option was to urge calm and sensible discussion, which de Bunsen, as the representative of Britain in Vienna, was on hand to organise. He liaised between the Russian representative and Potjurek, and gleaned from Viviani and the Italian representative the appropriate cooperation. The German ambassador in the Congress, Leonard von Chersky, who was also the German ambassador to Vienna, was said to have particularly appreciated the British support in acquiring satisfaction for its ally. Kaiser Wilhelm II had been told of the near miss while engaging in naval manoeuvres with his British counterparts, and the apparent calm of the Congress meant that both fleets remained in close proximity as the events continued over the 2nd to the 4th of July. As a sign of thanks for the Anglo-German cooperation displayed during the Congress, Kaiser Wilhelm was invited to dine in London on the 7th of July, ostensibly to show a unified commitment towards European peace by the British and Germans. Wilhelm was well received by British crowds, and the affair would later be immortalised as the Two Cousins Dinner, an event of mutual peacemaking which both Germany and Britain could be proud of. The Times talked up Wilhelm's attachment to his late grandmother Queen Victoria, and Wilhelm's English was said to be perfect as he dined with his royal cousin George V in private, which was made of the dual efforts at acquiring fair and reasonable satisfaction by the Anglo-German representatives in Vienna, which again the media latched onto as a symbol of the warming relationship between the once tense powers. The Anglophile German Chancellor, Theobald von Bettmann-Halwig, was said by historians to have seen the Two Cousins Dinner as his greatest achievement in Anglo-German diplomacy. Halwig had petitioned for it amongst his peers as the best opportunity to capitalise on the positive feelings of cooperation between the two countries after many years of tension. At one point it seemed as though Sir Edward Grey, renowned since for his anti-German and pro-Russian sentiments, would block the German offer, made as it had been through the other renowned Anglophile and German ambassador to Britain, Prince Lichnowsky. However, Grey's policy line was in a weak position after the Russians and Serbs had evidently come off so badly in an assassination attempt on the now glorified Archduke and his heroic saviour, Governor Potjurek. At the same time, this Anglo-German cooperation had been anticipated with the so-called 
Haldane mission in years past. When the naval race was reaching its climax and the Lord Chancellor, Richard Haldane, had been sent to ease tensions. That mission, occurring over 1912 and 13, hadn't succeeded even with Haldane's pro-German sentiments, but it had created a precedent. This time around, distracted with affairs in Ireland and encouraged by mutual cooperation which had taken place in the previous Balkan Wars, this two cousins dinner seemed like a natural progression, particularly with the further Anglo-German cooperation seen during the Congress in Vienna over the 2nd to the 4th of July. Subsequent efforts to reconcile the standoffish and belligerent personality of the Kaiser with those of some elements of his military were made especially difficult by historians, owing to the genuine displays of affection and concern towards first his firm friend Franz Ferdinand, and then his cousin George V. Wilhelm, it was later concluded, viewed the Congress and the two cousins' dinner as the best opportunity to repair the damage inflicted upon Anglo-German friendship over the previous years. A current statue of his in Berlin depicts the Kaiser with a dove resting on his outstretched left hand and a sabre sheathed by his right. At the foot of the statue, marking the record-setting 54 years that Wilhelm served as German Emperor upon his death in 1944, it is inscribed, And the greatest gift he gave them was not war, but honour and glory in peace. Peace indeed was the desire of the Kaiser's cousin George V, though the stance of the other cousin, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, was less certain. These events would later paint a neat bundle of gradually building displays of Anglo-German cooperation, which historians would later point to as proof that the two empires could never have fought on opposite sides in the coming war. Though there is a school of thought which argues that there was no coherent aim in the German Foreign Office in the lead-up to the Great War. I tend to argue with this latter view, but historians are mostly unanimous that the combined acts of Anglo-German cooperation in the Congress in Vienna and the cordial, some would even say warm, displays of friendship displayed in the course of the Two Cousins' Dinner confirmed the foreign policies of both states going forward. While facing questioning on the 10th of July, 1914, the Russian ambassador to Belgrade, Nikolai Hartwig, died from a sudden heart attack while in Serbian custody. The Serbian police chief insisted that Hartwig had died due to stress and his general poor state of health, but St. Petersburg insisted on a full investigation being launched. Both blamed the other, as Hartwig was presented in Serbia as the man who led all true Serbs astray and took his secrets to the grave, while in Russia Nikolai Hartwig was the man of the Serbs whose kindness had been taken advantage of before he was thrown under the bus. The Tsar in particular was said to have been furious at Serbian accusations, and he insisted that the results of the previous Congress in Vienna had to stand, even if they were unpopular in Belgrade. These results included demands that Serbia cooperate fully with the joint European investigation, which was to follow, and that Austria require compensation from the Serbian government in a form later to be defined, as well as an official apology from the Serbian government for not halting those Bosnian-Serb operatives sooner. Over the following month, Dragutin Dmitrievich was arrested and he would eventually be hanged. At this, Vienna would declare itself satisfied. The hanging was said to have been secretly insisted upon by the Austrians, as per the demands they had given through the Congress, though it had not been part of the published documents. 
As the Serbs committed their own investigations, the result of the interrogations of the Sarajevo group provided valuable information, and this group were also hanged, Princip himself being the last man to the gallows. Franz Ferdinand was said to have been particularly keen to gain this measure of satisfaction from the Serbs, as it was rumoured that Konrad von Hotzendorf, the chief of the general staff in the Habsburg army and navy, and a long-time advocate of war against Serbia, continued to pester the emperor, Franz Josef, to launch a surprise war against Belgrade. Yet the Habsburg emperor had been swayed by the anti-war party, thanks largely to the sheer weight of the arguments of that party, and those Habsburg statesmen within it, which included the Hungarian minister-president, Stefan Tisa. Leopold von Berchtold, the Habsburg foreign minister, as well as that aforementioned Hungarian counterpart Stefan Tisa, would tenaciously block the demands of Hotzendorf and those within the war party, and Franz Ferdinand counted himself within the anti-war camp, especially as European opinion remained determinedly pro-Habsburg, and as the Congress actually gained Austria the satisfaction desired. In the case of her rivals, both in Russia and in Serbia though, affairs seemed to be unfolding far less smoothly. With Serbian Prime Minister Nikola Pesic refusing to vacate his position and his supporters rallying around him, it seemed as though the country might descend into civil war. Opponents of Pesic's regime and a large number of critics of the new Serbian monarchy seemed to go hand in hand. It became apparent by the last week of July 1914 that the Serbian king, Peter, backed Pesic and many believed that he refused to allow Pesic to stand down. Since 1903, when a bloody coup had brought him to power, King Peter had enjoyed varying degrees of popularity. The Balkan Wars had significantly added to his prestige, but amidst the rumours surging around following Sarajevo, the king was said to have been implicated in the plot. Some historians have since deduced that, owing to Peter's support of the previously implicated Pesic, that the king was in fact at least partially responsible for the assassination attempt, while others are less certain. As the records were burned shortly after the war, it has become difficult to determine either way who was precisely responsible, but one thing which was certain by the final days of July 1914 was that Serbia seemed to be tearing itself apart from within. The diehards among Pesic's inner circle and those of King Peter were at this point believed to have coined the idea of a short, sharp war against decadent Austria. The plan was almost immediately scuppered by the opposition in Serbia, led by the former ambassador to France, Milenko Radomir Veznic. Veznic had originally allied himself politically with Pesic, but since his strong performance, all things considered, in the recent Congress of Vienna, as he had represented Serbia at that Congress, Veznic was seen as the best candidate to succeed Pesic now. Serbian elections, set for the 14th of August 1914, meant that Pesic could, if he desired, wait for the public to choose and attempt to sit out the scandal, although it remained to be seen if he could weather that storm. A firm advocate of Slav unity and pan-Slavist ideas, it was hoped that Veznic would be able to repair the now shaky relationship which the Serbs maintained with Russia, after it had virtually fallen apart following Nikolai Hartwig's death on the 10th of July. Yet, just as Veznic hoped to patch things up and persuade Pesic to stand down quietly, affairs in Russia were proceeding at a far less straightforward pace. The failure of the assassination attempt 
had hit Sergei Sazanov, Russian foreign minister, like a bomb. Immediately, he had cabled to his allies in government and prepared them to formulate a response. Sazanov was certain that Vienna would attempt to blame the incident on Russia, but when such blame never came, the veteran foreign minister meekly passed on his warmest wishes to Franz Ferdinand and the hero of Sarajevo, as Oskar Pocherek was now called. When it was learned that a congress in Vienna was being discussed, Sazanov initially didn't approve. It was, he believed, merely an opportunity for the Habsburgs to parade their hero in front of the crowds yet again. Yet as the consensus seemed to paint it as a good idea, he would relent, and he argued that the Russian ambassador to Germany should attend to represent St. Petersburg. It was only on the 5th of July, when he learned of the negative impact of the Congress, that Sazanov was said to have urged private talks take place, perhaps between Germany and Britain, to ensure that Serbian sovereignty was not disrespected. The French representative at the Congress in Vienna, René Viviani, was noted resignedly by the Russian attendee at that Congress to have appeared somewhat disinterested in the Russian general interest. It was rumoured that he endured deep political conflicts with Raymond Poincaré, who was, at the time, the French president. For the next few days, Sazanov's options seemed limited. Following Nikolai Hartwig's death, however, everything seemed to change. Subsequent records demonstrate the extent to which the event soured Russian opinions of Serbs across the world. When it was learned that Hartwig had been implicated and roughed up during the investigation, Sazanov attempted to press the Serbs for more information, but he could not get a replacement ambassador into Belgrade for at least a fortnight, and so he had to mostly rely on the French and Italians for further information. This diplomatic incident was underlined by the fact that Serbia now seemed to be persona non grata in Europe at this stage, not to mention the fact that it was slipping into civil war, with Pesic and his king refusing to budge. Sazanov appreciated that it would be difficult to persuade his Tsar to advocate a firm course of action in support of the Serbs, especially as news of the two cousins' dinner also filtered in from London. Tsar Nicholas was said to have been outraged at the fact that his two cousins, Kaiser Wilhelm II and George V, had met in private for a dinner without him. Supposedly, historians have said since that the Tsar saw it as a personal snub. Although the month of July 1914 was a busy one for him, with a long-awaited visit from the French president, Raymond Poincaré, expected to take much of the middle part of the month and therefore much of his time away from him, only ending itself on the 23rd of July when Poincaré sailed home, the Tsar still felt miffed. Regarding the French president's visit, accompanied as he was by a reluctant René Viviani, who may have felt some sting of resentment from the Russians that he interacted with, all talk had been about the Serbs and how the Tsar must get a handle on them before they ruined the Franco-Russian plans and significantly alter European opinion. For Raymond Poincaré, Germany remained the most glaring threat, and he had only recently forced through a military law in France which would scrape down to the bottom of the barrel of French manpower in order to keep on level with Germany, though the military bill had been unpopular with most Frenchmen. It was rumoured that the Tsar was tiring of the military requirements of the French alliance, and Poincaré was there to make sure that he stood firm. For his part, Sazanov was regularly visited by experienced generals and military men in the first two weeks of July, but their repeated urgings to crush Austria before Serbia collapsed did not find an agreeable ear in Sazanov, at least not yet. 
It was then learned that Pesic was under pressure to stand down, and that the prominent Russophile Malenko Veznich was destined to replace him. Shortly after cabling Belgrade to inquire about Pesic's status on the 29th of July 1914, Sazanov was then risen from his bed on the early morning of the 30th of July. It was the Serbian ambassador, with news that Nikola Pesic had stood down after all. Thus, St. Petersburg could be expecting a memo from the new Serbian Prime Minister within a few hours. Milenko Vesnich had been rushed to the helm of the troubled Kingdom of Serbia on the evening of the 29th of July 1914. It is from this point that historians generally trace the beginning of the end of the European peace, and the so-called August Crisis is largely seen as the diplomatic precursor to the Great War. A series of cables passed between Belgrade and St. Petersburg over the 30th of July to the 3rd of August represent, it is now believed, the first in a series of requests from the Serbian Prime Minister for support in the event of a war with Austria. Veznich was also said to have been emphatic about his desire to maintain the Russian connection, and he had written numerous works in the past, such as his PhD thesis, about the common fiery blood of all Slavs, including the Russians. During the course of this correspondence, Veznich lambasted the recent Congress in Vienna and claimed that Serbian sovereignty was now being impinged upon by the other European powers due to the Habsburg pressure, which was unduly exercised in Vienna's repeated insistence that Serbia must open the country for an investigation by a deputation of foreign powers, which it had yet to do. This had been one of the demands of the Congress in Vienna, and Serbia's failure to comply rankled European opinion, which remained pro-Habsburg. Governor Potjarek, that saviour of Sarajevo, was said to have been next in line to succeed Leopold von Berchtold as foreign minister, such was the sway he was now believed to command in the hearts of all Europeans, in particular the Habsburgs. Vesnich's distaste for this promotion was palpable, as he imagined Potjarek lording his position and status over the Serbs, and using it to wrest more concessions from Belgrade. Such was Vesnich's concern, and Vesnich claimed those of his allies that he had been persuaded to launch a short, sharp war, not against Austria, but Bulgaria, the defeated power of the Second Balkan War. It is thus by late July or early August that the idea of a war launched by Serbia against Bulgaria starts to come to light. By creating this distraction and grabbing some quick gains for his country, Vesnich hoped to change the discourse in Europe from that of sympathy with Austria to admiration of Serbian military prowess. To do this, Vesnich accepted that Serbia would need a casus belli with the Bulgarians, and it was in the course of this correspondence that Vesnich put to paper two key issues. 
The first was the necessity in making the Bulgarians attack the Serbs, and to make such an eventuality take place, the Bulgarians would have to be provoked and persuaded into attacking and immediately transferring the sympathy card to Belgrade. This sympathy card was considered by Veznich to be an especially important resource, and Sazanov agreed. The second issue was the question of where Russia stood. Veznich wanted to know if Tsar Nicholas II, a noted enemy of the Bulgarian Tsar, Ferdinand, would join in the war, or if St. Petersburg would remain a friendly neutral. These Veznich Sazanov letters, often shorthanded by historians to the VS letters, shed a revealing light on Russo Serb diplomacy after the Congress in Vienna. It demonstrated the desperation present in the Serb government, which by early August still contained many conspirators responsible for the failed assassination attempt on Franz Ferdinand, though they had yet to be removed. These men were paranoid for their position and station, and so they collectively urged the likes of Nikola Pesic and then Veznich after him to act quickly against, first Vienna, and when that didn't seem to work out, Bulgaria. That Veznich was proposing the instigation of a third Balkan war to Sergei Sazanov did not seem to unduly phase the Russian foreign minister. Sazanov in fact largely agreed with Veznich that the ascension of Pacharek to the Habsburg foreign ministry would be intolerable for the Russians and the Serbs and the French, and it may even put steel in the Austrian position when the Russians and French could least afford it. Sazanov claimed that Bulgaria would easily fall to Belgrade, and while he did maintain that Russia would support their Serb ally as a friendly neutral, he did warn Veznich that complications could arise if the war was not quickly settled. Had that been all that Sazanov communicated to his Serbian counterpart, then the following war may not have been so controversial. Yet, that was not all that Sazanov said. On the morning of the 2nd of August, Veznich again emphasised Serbian weakness in the face of a sceptical European bias against her, and he pointed to the divisions within Serbian society once more. This seemed to have done the trick for Sazanov, as he sent the now infamous letter in reply. Writing, My dear friend will know of the concern I hold for his country's position, as well as his own position more generally. He can be confident in my sincere promise that, should affairs reach such a point so that it seems Serbian integrity is threatened, the Russian Empire and His Majesty will use all means at its disposal to safeguard the Serbian position, whatever this may entail. My dear friend may consider this check of assurance blank, and he may do what he wishes with it. Such loose talk seems incredible now, but we must remember that at the end of every letter the phrase, destroy when read, is found. The VS letters, which have been translated into over 50 languages, and now form the basis for primary source literature on the Great War, exist in their original manuscript form only in Vienna today, behind a reinforced glass case, forever providing a testament to the guilt of the Habsburg Empire's enemies. With the blank check given by Sazanov to Veznich, the latter now set himself the task of plotting an invasion of Bulgaria, and presenting a fait accompli to the interested powers before anything could be done. The provisional date for the invasion of Bulgaria, and the Third Balkan War which would result, was set for the 15th of August 1914. With Russian assurance guaranteed for whatever would result from the invasion, it seemed as though Tsar Ferdinand of Bulgaria was doomed to another ruinous loss, as had been experienced during the Second Balkan War. Critically for the future of the 20th century, an accord existed between Germany and Bulgaria, 
which centred upon a massive loan given by German banks to the needy Bulgarians following the latter's defeat in the Second Balkan War. Bulgarian Prime Minister since 1913, Vasil Radoslavov, had maintained a largely pro-German policy because of this, though Tsar Ferdinand's German ancestry was also said to have played a role. German financial claims on Bulgarian mines and extensive arms deals which were signed in late July 1914 ensured that Sofia would be tied at least nominally to Germany, but on the 5th of August 1914 it was learned that Radoslavov and Bethman Holweg had signed a defensive alliance, apparently oblivious to the Serbian plans which counted down to the 15th of that month. Ten days before the war then, a war which Vesnich insisted was so critical to recoup the lost prestige and sovereignty of Serbia, it became clear that the planned invasion of Bulgaria would not be so straightforward. The real question then was whether Vesnich would elect to go ahead with his war plan, regardless. On the 7th of August 1914, amidst stormy scenes in the Serbian cabinet, it was decided that the planned war against Bulgaria would proceed as normal. Vesnich and his allies were adamant that Germany would not intervene, as the accord was known to have its detractors in Berlin as much as in Sofia. Vesnich maintained that the numerous financial bills which had been passed permitting German intervention in Bulgaria's financial sphere had been heavily and violently opposed in the Bulgarian parliament, and Vesnich believed that this division would ensure German neutrality. Either way, Vesnich argued as the Serbian Prime Minister, the time had come for Serbia to strike. The current investigation into Serbian culpability in the assassination attempt of the 28th of June continued to erode public and national confidence, and it was rumoured that other Balkan states were planning to capitalise on the Serbian weakness by laying claim to portions of Macedonia. Furthermore, Vesnich argued, with the Ottoman Empire receiving two British dreadnoughts within a few weeks, Constantinople would also be a factor in the conflict, and her clear naval superiority in the region would pose a definite problem to Serbian integrity then. Thus the war was approved of, and Vesnich commanded the Serbian military to provoke or at least formulate an excuse for the invasion of Bulgaria in the early morning of the 15th of August, 1914. The impact of the Serbian invasion was immediate. The Serbian chief of the general staff, a Radomir Putnik, would lead the main thrust of the invasion towards Sofia, which was only a few kilometres from the Bulgarian-Serb border. Shock and a sense of anger seeped into the Austrian and German courts. Emergency memos were immediately sent to Berlin by Tsar Ferdinand of Bulgaria, requesting that the Kaiser mobilise his forces and come to the aid of his stricken country, as per the terms of their accord. Wilhelm II temporalised and he consulted with his generals. Meanwhile, Governor Potjarek, still an international star, petitioned the courts of Europe to condemn the Serbian invasion, pointing to it as proof of the Serb guilt and the low moral fibre of that country's character. In London, confusion reigned over why and how the Serbs had acted, and where Britain could possibly weigh in. Ireland, as ever, remained a distraction, with further talks on home rule planned for September, and the preliminary talks to take place at the end of August. There was little doubt that the Serbian attack had been a belligerent and aggressive act, wholly out of order with international law. That at least was something that the British cabinet could agree on. George V received a letter from Wilhelm II on the 16th of August, requesting that Anglo-German diplomacy yet again seek to defuse the Balkan tensions 
as had been done in the previous Balkan Wars. Much was made of the fact that this conflict, the third within the Balkans in less than three years, displayed plainly the juvenile and dangerous nature of those independent states. How much better for the peace of Europe, declared the Manchester Guardian on the 18th of August, 1914, was that fell portion of the continent when it remained the responsibility of the Turk. Though the question was, of course, rhetorical, there was much anger among the British people that the Serbs had acted dishonourably, much was made of the Bulgarian weakness, the heroism of its soldiers and the unfortunate hopelessness of its cause. Then on the 21st of August, panic ensued when arguably one of the most famous documents of the 20th century was issued. It was signed by Kaiser Wilhelm II and it declared Germany's unrelenting purpose to defend Bulgaria from attack. If the Serbs did not withdraw their forces from that country, Wilhelm said, Germany would be forced to take punitive measures. In Belgrade, Prime Minister Veznich seemed to be leading a sinking ship. Though the invasion had gone incredibly well, it had to be said, with Sofia falling by the 20th of August, this success had drawn first Austro-German ire and then the following day, a declaration to the effect that unless Serbia ceased its invasion, Berlin would respond in force. The great gamble of Veznich, it seemed, had failed. Yet to both Veznich and his circle of die-hard Serbs, the game had not been lost. The Serbian ambassador to Russia was rumoured to have held extensive talks with Sazanov once the invasion began. The Russians, it seemed, were willing to intervene on the side of the Serbs if they ran into sufficient difficulties. From this, Veznich could note with a level of apprehension mixed with excitement that their localised conflict had the potential to erupt into a wider European war. With this in mind, by the 24th of August 1914, when it became clear that Serbia had no intention whatsoever of withdrawing its forces, Kaiser Wilhelm II signed Germany's immediate danger of war order, effectively mobilising German armed forces and issuing a bold statement to the continent. In this action, Berlin did enjoy the firm support of Vienna, and in most cases Rome, though the latter was hesitant to fully involve itself in these affairs just yet. In St. Petersburg, a hurried Russian response to the German mobilisation seemed to prove that the Russians would not stand by and allow Germany to invade its Serb ally. The French ambassador, Maurice Paleologue, was petitioned by Sazanov to ask Paris where it stood on the situation, which had by this stage clearly descended from a situation into a full-blown crisis. It was at this critical juncture, as the courts of some nations in Europe seemed undecided on where to precisely act, that a turning point occurred which solidified European opinion against the Russo-Serb efforts. In a desperate counter-attack which took the Serbs by surprise, Sofia was recaptured by the Bulgarians amidst national rejoicing on the 25th of August 1914. Thus frustrated, a trainload of Serbian soldiers meant for the Bulgarian border was accidentally left out of the national effort to respond to the Bulgarian move. This trainload of 350 Serbian soldiers who had been stationed near the border of Serbia with Albania, took matters into their own hands. Arguing that they were acting in the name of Serbian national security, they roused Serb nationals in and around the Albanian border, and thus swollen to a force nearly 3,000 in size, on the 26th of August 1914 they marched into the small Adriatic country in force, massacring all Muslims and Albanian citizens they could find. 
When news of this outrage reached Vesnich, he became swayed by his diehard generals to capitalise on the breakdown in Albanian order caused by the unplanned invasion. Suddenly, 10,000 Serbs were diverted from the Bulgarian front to the invasion of Albania instead. By the 28th of August 1914, the entirety of Albania had been overrun and occupied by the Serbs, and countless outrages against the citizenry there had been committed in Belgrade's name. With this act of wanton barbarity and aggression, Serbia increasingly felt European opinion turning solidly against her. The Times painted the Serbian invasion of Albania as the most deplorable and outrageous crime against a peaceable people which was ever committed in the name of the national interest. But it wasn't merely the media or public opinion which mattered in Britain. Albania had, after all, been a strange creation. It was created by the different governments of Europe after the Balkan Wars to essentially keep Serbia manageable and prevent its domination over the rest of the Balkans through an ineffective port of access that it desired to the Adriatic Sea. The British consul in Albania had maintained a shaky western presence in the divided country in the months before the Serb invasion, but law and order had hung in the balance amidst Greek claims on the southern part of the country, which was only resolved with the Protocol of Corfu on the 23rd of June that granted the Greek portion of the country near complete autonomy from the north. The Serb invasion of the country of Albania on the 26th of August was thus conducted through mostly Greek regions of interest, and outrages committed against the Albanian, but ethically Greek people, provoked Athens to issue a protest and warning to Belgrade to withdraw from the south of Albania altogether. When this was refused, the Greeks mobilised, and to preempt a Greek invasion, Serbia declared war on Greece on the 1st of September 1914. Now at war on multiple fronts, Serbian forces dug in along a wide front along the Serb-Bulgarian border, determined now to make use of their occupation of Albania and take the fight to Greece. The threat from Germany was apparently incoming, though once the Serbs had invaded Albania on the 26th of August, an international deputation had been sent to Belgrade to insist on the immediate evacuation, for the sake of peace, of all previously invaded states surrounding Serbia. While this was going on, incredibly enough, both the Germans and Russians were pressured to stand back and await diplomatic procedures aimed at salvaging the fragile peace of the Balkans. These diplomatic procedures, since termed the last chance approach, were blatantly and defiantly torpedoed by the Serbian declaration of war on Greece on the 1st of September, which we recently saw, that persuaded the seven nations involved in the deputation Britain, France, Germany, Austria, Russia, Italy and a previously neutral Greek representative a peace in the region of the Balkans could not be salvaged. The Greek representative's protests were said to have been particularly poignant, and his denouncement of Serbian actions were picked up by foreign media outlets, which again casted Serbia in the worst possible light. With no reason now for Russia or for Germany to hold back, it seemed as though the war plans of both powers would be resumed. Not quite willing to give up on peace altogether though, on the 2nd of September, Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands urged Cam and invited all powers to what was called, somewhat sarcastically by historians since, the Congress of Peace, to take place in The Hague as soon as possible. Wilhelmina presented herself and the Dutch state as a neutral party determined to preserve the international peace, 
and through considerable British pressure, it seemed as though all would consent to this final act of peacemaking in Europe. Then, on the 4th of September 1914, it was learned that the Russians had invaded Bulgaria. With the Russian invasion of Bulgaria, ostensibly in support of their Serb ally, it seemed as though nothing could salvage the peace of Europe. Berlin, having already stopped and started its mobilisation procedures twice in one month, resumed them again for the final time, with Austria-Hungary now in full support. Governor Pacharek, as well as Franz Ferdinand and Emperor Franz Josef, sent out the so-called Condemnation of the Slavs on the 6th of September outlining every event in detail since the failed assassination on the 28th of June 1914. Taken together and disseminated across the various news agencies of the world, the crazy months of activity formed a vivid and distressing picture of Serbian and then Russian culpability in the destruction of the European peace. It also had the effect of massively turning European opinion even further against Serbia, but also, perhaps more notably, against St. Petersburg. On the 3rd of September 1914, mere hours before the Russians would invade Bulgaria, a further sideshow of the widening crisis had occurred, which Russian historians later claimed compelled St. Petersburg to involve itself in the unfolding conflagration. This event was the Ottomans, having finally received their new dreadnoughts constructed from London. As the two new ships sailed through the Dardanelles, the Russians had looked on with great concern. Seeing the balance of power swing determinedly against them in the region, the Russians made the decision to launch a preemptive naval attack against the Turks, and in the so-called Gallipoli crime, the Russians destroyed one dreadnought and irreparably damaged the other. With their naval hopes dashed and years of popular fundraising to pay for these ships now underwater, the Ottoman government declared war on Russia three hours later. Shortly after this, in a display of what Belgrade termed its familial bond to St. Petersburg, the Serbs declared war on the Ottoman Empire. Incredibly, within a few short days, thanks to the paranoia of those behind the trigger, a Serb-Bulgarian war had mutated to directly involve virtually all powers in Eastern Europe, while the whole world looked on in rapture. Great debates endured in the French Assembly, as Raymond Poincaré argued determinedly for war alongside Russia. If France failed to support its ally now, the beleaguered president insisted, she would be the victim of an invasion by the Austro-Germans. War thus had to be declared, and the spirit of the offensive allowed to unseat the German presence in Alsace-Lorraine, while this opportunity presented itself. Paul Cambon, the French ambassador in London, had been pressured extensively to bring Britain in on the side of France, but Cambon was having no luck. The Anglo-German accord had become too strong and, what was more, Sir Edward Grey had insisted, public opinion was solidly against Russia and the Serbs. From Parliament on the 5th of September, Grey gave a speech arguing against British neutrality and insisting that the Russian perpetration of the Gallipoli crime, not to mention its support of the European terrorist, as the media was now popularly calling Serbia, provided just grounds for British intervention. Furthermore, Gray argued, Albania had been guaranteed by the British government, and she could not now abandon her amidst this time of crisis. Upon presenting these arguments to his peers, Gray enjoyed the firm support of the House. 
Britain had treaty obligations to protect Albania, while its national honour necessitated that it did not remain aloof as Bulgaria was destroyed. The French issue was more difficult to determine, and fierce debate ensued as to whether French support of Russia would constitute grounds for an Anglo-French war, something which many MPs found unthinkable. Russian aggression and the destruction of Turkey's fleet in the Black Sea were circumstances eerily similar to the events leading up to the Crimean War, and heated scenes ensued in Parliament as many peers argued forcibly for a stance that would demonstrate British power and firmness in the ensuing crisis. The Eastern question, the Conservatives insisted, had been revived, and the ghost of Benjamin Disraeli watched to see how all brave and true Britons would act in this great and noble national quest. Eventually, after much debate, it was decided that an ultimatum would be sent to Russia at noon on the 6th of September. If she did not evacuate her troops from Bulgaria and Turkey by noon on the 7th of September 1914, then Britain would declare war. The decision provoked scenes of passionate rejoicing in the streets of London. Here was the firm stand that the British people had been so desperate for. At this, the Russian ambassador to London, Alexander Benkendorf, protested that Russia was merely defending its national interests and position in the world, and that she could not be held responsible for what befell Britain, if she did indeed declare war. He left for St. Petersburg amidst jeers from an onlooking crowd in the evening of the 6th of September. Lichnowsky, the German ambassador and a stringent Anglophile, signed an accord with Grey that evening, promising German support in the event that British forces were forced to engage with those of France. Through this, it seemed that the once-committed Francophile Grey had made up his country's mind. If France opposed the British declaration of war by force, which Paris was compelled to do after all by the Franco-Russian Entente, then Britain would have to make war against France as well. As the developments unfolded, it was learned that Germany and Austria had declared war on Russia on the evening of the 6th of September, 1914. British crowds cheered the move, and many camped outside of Westminster till the following morning, when an official announcement of Britain's position vis-à-vis -vis Russia would be made by noon. Paul Cambon communicated the terms of the accord signed between Gray and Lichnowsky on the evening of the 6th of September, which compelled Germany to support Britain in the event of an Anglo-French war. Paul Cambon, shortly after this, cabled home to Paris, communicating the terms of the accord signed between Gray and Lichnowsky on the evening of the 6th of September, which compelled Germany to support Britain in the event of an Anglo-French war, and this new information resulted in uproar in the French chamber. Poincaré could not believe that the nominal ally of France would act in such a way. In the past, certain individuals in the British military, it would later transpire, had engaged in secret talks with their French counterparts regarding the extension of the Entente Cordiale into an offensive alliance against Germany. Yet, now such talks had stalled in the face of the old Eastern question, which seemed to throw everything out the window. Poincaré was outraged and argued for punitive measures to be taken against Britain before her navy could strike at French interests. At this, though, he was overruled, because many in Paris still held out hope that an Anglo-Russian war would not result from the crisis, but the prognosis was not good. Poincaré did attempt to use the incoming German invasion, predicted as per the Schlieffen Plan, the worst-kept secret in Europe, as political capital in Europe, but he could receive little support. 
The Schlieven plan, it seemed, despite the German declaration of war on Russia, had been put on hold. Indeed, the true significance of the two cousins' dinner on the 5th of July now became apparent. It was here that the Anglo-German friendship, founded along the lines of the royal families, seemed to have been permanently established. Now it emerged, amidst the German inaction of the Western Front, that Germany's military had been persuaded over the months of July and August not to invade France. British pressure, George V had then assured the Kaiser, would ensure that any military eventualities would render such an invasion unnecessary. Helmut von Molke, chief of the German general staff, for his part refused to abandon the Schlieffen plan, which, after all, had been the lifeblood of his campaign plan for the entirety of his career, and after much tension and insult, he was replaced by the more flexible Erich von Falkenhayn on the 28th of July 1914. Moltke, for his part, was reportedly in tears that his life's work had gone up in flames. Historians would later present the German abandonment of the Schlieffen plan as the best decision its general staff was ever induced to make. With the waging of a war on only one front and supported wholly by the British and most of European opinion as well, the Austro-German force aimed to attack the Russians in Bulgaria, in Poland and in Scandinavia, where it was reported that Sweden and Denmark-Norway were susceptible to German offers of an alliance. Through responding to these moves, it was clear the Russians would be plainly unable to stand down and thus unable to adhere to Britain's ultimatum. At this, at 12 midday on the 7th of September 1914, its ultimatum having run out, Britain issued a declaration of war against Russia. The declaration seems to have forced France to act, coming to the aid of its ally as per the terms of the 20-year-old Franco-Russian Entente, Poincaré urged his peers to fulfil that treaty's obligations and defend their allies' interests. French honour, Poincaré insisted, was at stake, and if France abandoned Russia now, then no power would ever rely on French commitments again. His argument seemed to do the trick, and on the 8th of September 1914, France declared war on Germany and on Russia, and French forces were mobilised for an invasion of Alsace-Lorraine. The cult of the offensive, bolstered as it was by French Elan, would carry French soldiers to victory. In their haste to bring the war to the Germans, the sensitive issue of the Low Countries was addressed. It was decided that Belgium, Luxembourg and the Netherlands would remain untouched and neutral unless they attacked French or Russian interests. Pressure was also being mounted on the Italian ambassador to declare one way or the other, but for the moment Rome remained neutral. With both Britain and France now awkwardly occupying different sides of the conflict, Russian pressure for France to mobilise its naval reserves and pool them with those of the Russian Baltic Sea Fleet, soon became intense. The naval issue had been an immense sticking point for Britain, and Grey had insisted in the past that the only thing which could induce Britain to make war on its French friend was the imminent danger that France and Russia would pool their naval resources and strike as one against the undefended German coasts. With the Royal Navy now in the Baltic, the threat from the French Navy to the British shores suddenly became acute for the first time in a century. Much scaremongering was put forward by the media, and accusations that the French planned to invade Britain in defence of Russia were widely thrown about. On the 10th of September 1914, with tensions at a breaking point, the appearance of the French navy off the northern coast of France, having sailed up from the Mediterranean in the previous July, 
caused immense panic in Britain. When the French Navy failed to respond to a British signal, a warning shot was fired, and when the French responded with a direct attack that paralysed the British gunboat, an emergency wire was cabled to London, since immortalised by both the media and historical record alike, reading, Under receipt of French attack and in need of immediate assistance, this is not a drill. Request notification of a state of war with France. Mobilise all coastal forces. When news of this incident, the so-called Channel Attack, was learned of in the British government, grave decisions were apparently due to be made. Tensions had reached such a point between the once amicable powers that affairs now seemed to suggest war. London could not allow the attack on its gunboat to go unanswered, especially so close to her home domains. So she sent a memo to the French government demanding compensation, and at 11am on the 12th of September 1914, these demands unanswered for 24 hours, Britain declared war on France. The Great War, building for so many years and so many months and so many weeks, had begun. So what did we think, guys? I, for one, really enjoyed this foray into alternative history, and the keen-eyed among you will be able to notice that I threw in some actual historical figures in there to make it seem more realistic. Would such a scenario have taken place? Who knows, but it is, of course, fun to speculate. Until then, guys, I have been Zach, and this has been a crazy look at what might have been had Gavrida Princip missed. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.